I'm my mum's favourite child, I think it's fair to say that. Um, but it's a double-edged sword. I'm the one that she goes to all the time and it's a bit exhausting. I'm walking down the street of my childhood and my head instinctively turns toward the house where she stood. It was a summer lived in terraced housing. The terraced house is a big character in this story as well. It's not just the house that a person occupies, but it's the whole street. It's the whole block that is connected. People share that. And once I'd seen her, it was like she'd always been there, facing the door to her house, bent, ready to turn the handle, motionless of the spirit realm, black magic, gins, demons, things that are unknown, the supernatural. Hello and welcome to the Fictionable Podcast with me, Richard Lee. We've been hearing a little more from our fantastic contributors this summer in an expanded series of podcasts. Though if you're American, Joyce Carol Oates isn't so sure you'll remember. Americans have very short memories and short attention spans. We see people. Perhaps you'll recall Fiona Mosley confessing an unfortunate character flaw. I guess I've got a bit of an awkward personality in the sense that if I get known for something. Or Jose Folero, voiced by Maria Jacqueline Evans, revealing a surprising plot twist. He's human. This is a big deal to me, you know. This shines. It's the most. Or Donald McLaughlin, insisting that his character, Liam O'Donnell, absolutely, definitely isn't him. No, he isn't me. <laughs> there was such an incident once. For this final edition of our summer series, we welcome Sapa Khan. When we met to talk about her graphic short story, At the Door, she started by giving us a short reading. You'll have to head to the site at fictional.world or just imagine her vibrant images full of textured blues and pinks with dashes of warm reds and yellows. Mum will like these. The older she gets, the more she fixates on who has brought her flowers and who has not. I'm walking down the street of my childhood and my head instinctively turns toward the house where she stood. It was a summer's day. I was walking back from the park with an ice cream when I saw her. And once I'd seen her, it was like she'd always been there, facing the door to her house, bent, ready to turn the handle, motionless, fixed. The only movement, her sari and her hair. And there she is, head bowed, her back towards us, the folds of her sari shifting in the breeze. With her mysterious character hovering over us, I started by asking Khan how at the door came knocking. At the door was born from another story. It was a story within a story. So at the time of writing it, there was a lot going on for me. My mum had just fallen ill. She'd been diagnosed with cancer. So I was in the midst of a real homecoming. I was coming to my mum, my dad, the family of origin, the place of where everything began for me, where my life started, family structures and family dynamics. I was really in the midst of it. Suddenly I was seeing siblings and cousins and extended family a lot more than what I would have liked to. Um, <laughs> but I kind That's of... That's right, don't hold back. Tell you how it is. 
But I mean, it's very, you know, I, you know, there's lots of negotiations with my family. I come from a very large extended family. So it's always a negotiation. It was all just chucked up in the air the moment this happened. And we all had to be there for my mum. And that was the first and foremost. We had to put aside all of the other things that had gone on, the things that had been said, the ways that we had settled, I guess, in our lives. And that was where I'd begun writing the story. I was literally returning home to my mum and I would often take her flowers. So that's the starting point for this one. Was it clear to you straight away that you needed to be set on the streets of East London? I'm endlessly fascinated with Victorian terraced housing. I also do architecture. Part of my work is looking at the way we live, the structures that we build around ourselves the places that we inhabit. I think it's going to be a lifelong fascination for me because I've always lived in terraced housing. The terraced house is a big character in this story as well. It's not just the house that a person occupies, but it's the whole street. It's the whole block that is connected. People share their walls, they share their garden walls. Structurally, it all acts as one attic spaces. I think back in the Victorian times, if you ever went up to your attic, you could see through to the other houses. Those walls in between in the attic space were not built. And I find that fascinating as well, like puncturing in. My mum and my aunt share a back garden. You go into the garden and you go into the shed and the shed has a door that takes you to my mum's garden and vice versa to my aunt's garden. And so they're sort of connected as well. So this idea of breaking those small compartments and becoming one with each other, it's again something that comes up in the story. The terraced house is a box all on its own, but yet it's actually built into the other boxes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a box within a box within a box. And the story is a story within the stories. Mm these concentric circles and this nesting is something that I'm just really drawn to and that comes in my other projects as well. There are similarities of course but it's also a new departure from you after your memoir The Roles We Play. How was it to make the shift from non-fiction to making stuff up? Yeah that was quite a big one. It's really made me confront why I've done memoir, what's safe about it and I think it was safe my lived experience, what I've experienced and what I've thought, is something that no one can take away from me. That is my reality. And I think I really needed to assert that. That was almost the starting point of my abilities, my voice, my contribution to society. It was almost like laying a foundation. What I've experienced is real and it's correct for me. And no one can take that away from me. No one can invalidate that. No one can question that. And I think I needed that for my confidence, for my sense of self. And I think that's where the memoir, that first body of work, made sense. The move towards fiction. Can I tell a convincing story? Can I move to that space of confidence and that space of power, I guess, to be able to create a new world? It's massive, massive stuff. And I think it's not going to just be in this piece that I've done for Fictionable. It's the beginnings of imagining alternatives and moving outside of myself. Did it feel like a new sense of freedom? It felt different. And maybe that's freeing because it's challenging in, in a new way. But it was also terrifying as well. I think a lot of my work comes from anxiety. I think I work in a space of absolute terror that my work is going to be shit. <laughs> it's got to be good and I've got to be saying something. 
I often will layer in lots of meaning, lots of symbolism, lots of hidden undercurrents to what I'm trying to say. And I think it's this feeling of every piece needs to say a multitude of things. It strikes me there's a difference in the world of graphic fiction to the world of prose fiction, which is just a kind of labelling thing. Many things which are in fact memoirs seem to be called graphic novels. I think there's something really limiting about separating visual storytelling from literary storytelling. I recently bought a book from a South Korean writer called Walking Practice, and I walked into Foils. It's currently a hardback, and I opened it, and there was prose writing, and then there was illustrations. So she's an artist as well, so she'd brought her visual practice in. But it was considered a book, as in like a literary book, rather than a graphic novel. It wasn't in the graphic novel section. There's a real compartmentalisation. Just in that main foils in Charing Cross, you've got this small little mezzanine for the graphic novel section, and it's hidden away, and you sometimes you have to figure out how to get there. You know, and I've got friends who are more traditional authors, and they've seen their books in different genres, different spaces of the bookshop different types of people will consume them and reflect on them and I do think there's a limitation here within the industry that needs to be reckoned with. But it's not, I mean it is obviously a question of shelving but it's not just shelving. I wonder if it impacts on the way you go about creating your work. The fact that I had to gravitate towards memoir, I had to gravitate towards something that I knew to build that confidence. I think that's the back and forth, that's the play. You need to go to things that are familiar to you, that are known to you, to then be able to push them and move beyond them to do something truly exciting. One of the ways you pushed in At The Door was to push the boundaries of realism, the woman always standing at the door when that's clearly physiologically impossible, the monster residing within, the hex to ward off spirits. Did you enjoy that license to roam? Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I think that's what was really exciting about the possibilities of fiction, I think. It didn't have to make sense. I mean, it also did make sense. It made sense in my mind, and that was okay. That was enough. Also, another fascination, in addition to terraced housing, is the spirit realm, and also diaspora stories of the spirit realm. Black magic, jinns, demons things that are unknown, the supernatural, and how that plays out in our interior landscape, and also exterior landscape as well. So the park that we go to, when I walk with my mum and we go for a walk in the flower section, there's these really beautiful maple trees and magnolia trees, and there'll be people that have got ribbons and pieces of fabric, and they've parceled things inside them and knotted them onto the trees. And my mum's like these are promises or these are convictions. These are things that people have embodied in these little parcels and then they've put them in this natural landscape as a way to connect to this other dimension that we don't know. That's just one anecdote. There's so many that she's told me and I've heard from other families and other people that nails being driven in the four corners of the house. Like, that's so powerful. I'd never thought of a house's four corners. Suddenly it makes it all just this shell and this container for all of this energy. So it was really exciting to do that and, <laughs> and to, to weave it in. <laughs>
Because, I mean, you were saying earlier that the roles we play isn't just straight memoir. There's a certain amount of the supernatural there too. Yeah, yeah, supernatural and also critical thinking as well and making sense of things and thinking beyond myself, outside of myself, making social commentary, political commentary and trying to make sense of things. Yeah, so I think there are similar intentions with both pieces and I think people who, who have read my previous work will see that in this new work as well. Another thread that runs through both the roles we play and out the door is the pushes and pulls between mothers and daughters, with the narrator's mother fixating on the flowers or beckoning the narrator on when she wants to stay and help the woman standing outside the house. Was that relationship something you set out to explore or did it just elbow its way in? I think it elbowed its way in. I'm the youngest in my family and I'm my mum's favourite child, I think it's fair to say that. Um, But it's a double-edged sword. I'm the one that she goes to all the time and it's a bit exhausting, but it's okay. Like, I look at the piece that I've done for Fictionable. It's within her environment, it's her space, and me as a child is within her perception. And then I think it's the adult voice that then comes in and is trying to reason and trying to make sense and trying to think beyond it being this supernatural thing, which is very much the stuff that she would say to me and get me to be convinced by. And as adult self, being exposed to mental health ideas, ways that we develop coping mechanisms, anxieties, just thinking back to those kinds of figures in my childhood and being like, actually, they needed a lot more tenderness than what the rest of us offered them at the time. If you are your mother's favourite child, then it's a role that gives certain responsibilities, certain opportunities, as well as certain possibilities. I feel like I've always been lucky to be held in my mother's love, I think. You know, I said earlier it is a double-edged sword because with us especially there's an enmeshment, if I use psychological terms. Um, We are enmeshed, part of that. Forming my sense of self, my own voice, was not just a response to sort of social things, it was also familial stuff as well, me trying to identify myself outside of those enmeshed roles. But I think on a deeper level, it's not just my story that I'm telling And maybe that's where I take on her persona as well quite easily because that enmeshment is there. And you see it in the roles we play where there's a whole chapter and it's quite a key chapter that's dedicated to her story, her version of her migration to the UK. And then also like her relationship with her mother and how that's translated to me. Another thing that I'm fixated with and fascinated with is these triangles across generations, how personalities, how things that we are bothered by get passed down generations, how we inherit them. It's not just my voice, but it's like a multitude of voices that are coming across. There's also that link, not only your role within the family, your character's role within the family, but also the connection between the family and the slightly wider community. We live in Forest Gate in Newham, and I often talk about it as the epicentre of South Asian diaspora for East London. I mean, you could argue Whitechapel and Tower Hamlets is one as well. There are multiple epicentres, but that enmeshment is not just between mother and child it's also between wider cultural identifiers versus the host culture that we find ourselves in the one example that comes to my mind is when I was doing PR for the roles we play I was talking about it in English 
And then there was one radio station based in Birmingham and they speak Batwari, which is my mother tongue, my mum's mother tongue. What is my mother tongue? Is it English or is it Batwari? I don't know. Anyway, my mum's mother tongue. They asked me if I know and I was like, yes, I know. This is how I speak with my mum, but it's only ever within that personal space. If I have friends who can speak Batwari, we would always speak in English. We wouldn't use our home language. It was so fascinating to sell the book, to talk about the book in Batwari. It suddenly became really personal and really private and really tender and also a bit childlike as well. I've realised that when I speak Batwari, it's more in a higher pitch. And I think it's because I'll speak it with my mum. You know, I'm her child. I go into child mode with her. So there's lots of fascinating things there. And (laughs) I think that's one example Another fascinating thing is the colour palette you've chosen for this story, the blues and the pinks, the flashes of yellow. Where do they come from? When I was telling the story of this neighbour of ours, she was always the colour. She was always the centre point of the story. There's obviously lots of things that go around it. There's the relationship between me and my mum. There's the wider context, the architecture. But really, she was the one that I wanted to give that love and that kindness to that I spoke about earlier the fact that she never received that at the time that she needed it she visibly needed it and we weren't able to give that to her so now in retelling her story could I give her that color could I give her that attention in the visuals so I always knew that she would be in warm colors reds and oranges and yellows and pinks and then everything else had to be in contrast to her and that's where the blues came in. So it ends up being quite poppy, actually, which is quite nice. But that was the thinking around it. And also just layering in sort of risograph textures, which is where the sort of graininess comes in. And that was a further adding of that nostalgia of going back to 90s London, times when mental health wasn't really spoken about because it was pre-social media culture and before we could start discussing these things as a global community. You managed to end the roles we play on a note of optimism, a world in which a child of yours could flourish in a moment of togetherness with your own mother, without spoiling too much. There's no space for a happy ending in At The Door. Did you just run out of room? (laughs) I think At The Door was a thought process. It didn't necessarily have a happy ending. I wanted the figure to remain haunting. And I think it's a reminder of... The things that have happened in our past that shape who we are now. So yeah, I think the end is a haunting and that's where she becomes like a ghost. (laughs) I've spoiled it. (laughs) (laughs) Now you've tasted the joys of fiction, are you going to be making stuff up again? Oh yeah, I think I will actually. Currently I'm really interested in the ambiguity of what is my reality and what is outside of my reality. So I'm quite interested in that. But I think the bigger question for me is whether I can offer myself a completely different reality and whether I can immerse myself in that and trust myself in that as well. Is it always South Asian stories? Is it always Muslim stories? Is it always female stories? Can I be a South Londoner that's 60 years old who's from Cyprus, who's male? Something completely different from my point of reference. Can I enter that realm? Can I make that world? And can I do justice to that world as well? And I don't know if I'm there yet. I might be there in like 30 years' time or 20 years' time. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? I don't know about you, 
But I can't wait 30 years for that South London Cypriot caper. That was Sabah Khan. You can find Out the Door, as well as brand new stories from Joyce Carol Oates, Fiona Mosley, José Falero, translated by Maria Jacqueline Evans, and Donna McLaughlin, exclusively at Fictionable.world. Search for Fictionable with your mobile, tablet, laptop or smart front door. For £20, you'll get a year's worth of the most exciting new short stories and comics. Head for that handy menu at the top on the right-hand side and click subscribe. You'll also get unlimited access to our steadily increasing archive of fiction from writers including Ali Smith, Sarah Hall, Yan Yan Kerr and Serena Cat, as well as blogs from Kate Serkin, Bella Lack and Yachun Liu. Check out Dina Nieri's brilliant essay on what happens when fiction shrinks to memoir. We love it when you let us know what you make of our stories, blogs and podcasts. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram or Twitter. Or why not come over all Web 1.0 and send us an email on info at fictionable.world. That's all for this expanded summer season. So with thanks to Sabah Khan, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Pokujeni, thanks for listening and see you in autumn.